Our emotions are designed, they're designed to inform us, not to direct us. There is no number you're ever going to get to that is going to heal whatever is going on inside of you. I think defining what it means to be a man is not possible. And, and when I say I don't think it's possible, I think I mean on a mass scale of agreement throughout societies. Oftentimes, anger is simply sadness masked. Because I feel like you never really stop growing. And if you have stopped growing, like you're already dead in the water. You know, stagnation is synonymous to death. You are now embarking on the imperfect experience. Before we get into this week's episode, I do want to highlight some trigger warnings. We do talk about rape and sexual assault. So if you're uncomfortable with those topics, please uh, be wary of this episode. Um, It is one that I think is really impactful where we talk a lot about how to overcome uh, the victim mentality into survivor mentality and a lot more about how to reclaim your sexual empowerment after a horrific moment like that but i did want to give fair warning to everyone before entering this podcast we talk a little bit more about her life after that rape um, taking back ownership of her life finding her self-worth recovering from addiction Um, both of her parents died when she was a really young age so she's been through a lot of trauma in her life and then we end the conversation in the current stage of talking about the sexualization of women and a little bit about the me too movement and how from someone who's been part of that um, moments like that how we shouldn't go moving forward and about creating safety for men in their sexual experiences too Um, so i hope you enjoy this episode it really is one that um, takes a lot of emotional capacity to listen to and that's kind of where i'll leave it i'll we'll get into the episode now Imperfect listeners, I am very excited by today's guest, uh, Amanda Webster. She is a former Playboy model, uh, and we're going to talk about how she got into that, her life journey. And Amanda, thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited. Yes. The first question I always ask my guests is, who is one famous, or no, sorry, who is one person, dead or alive, that you'd like to have over dinner, and what would you cook for them? You know, I, I immediately want to say like one of my family members because I, I really would like to see my mom or dad again, but a famous person, uh, obviously Chester Bennington, everybody knows my story knows that that's the one famous person that I really wanted to meet um, and I did not get to. And all I wanted to do was say thank you, you know, for for inspiring me, for giving me something uh, to help me cope through through the years. What would I cook? Probably some kind of vegan Alfredo because that's my specialty. I can't mess that up too much. I make it so much that I, I, I know what I'm doing now. And even my, my meat eating friends are like, that's delicious. So <laughs> I go with vegan Classic. Alfredo. I, uh, are you a vegan in your day to day or yes. just the vegan meal? Okay. I think I'm having Alfredo for dinner, but it's not vegan. I think my dad got meatballs with it. Well, you should try the vegan version. I will send you my recipe. Actually, I just posted my recipe the other day on Instagram. You should try it. Plug your Instagram. What is it right now? Amanda Webster Health. Okay, perfect. That's great. That way uh, I have to do less work searching through at the end. Um, But Amanda, I'm really excited for you to be here. I think the aspect of you being a Playboy model is really fascinating. Um, Obviously, it's it's sold... I would think primarily to men. And this is a podcast about masculinity and manhood. I know it's not like Playboy isn't really as, is it as popular now as it was to, I guess, like our, our parents' generation or like, is it still big? It is in its own right. Playboy, the print magazine just went out. It printed its last edition in the spring of 2020. 
but they have a very uh, big online presence. They're still obviously a household name, uh, very recognizable, and they still have a lot of projects going on. They're still doing special editions and stuff. I think that it's just a whole new generation now. What used to be, it actually started uh, for soldiers and stuff. It was a publication primarily for military and then uh, got picked up more by the mainstream, by men. Mm. And in recent years, it's been more about the articles and the comics and the stuff like that. So it just, it kind of changed focus. Obviously, there still are lots of naked girls uh, on their website and stuff, on on their uh, subscription. But I think the focus has definitely shifted for our generation now. Okay. Is it more like cosmopolitan if like where it talks about still talks about sex and relationships and what stuff, but a little bit more uh, graphic? It does. They do have uh, sections on sex and relationships, but they they've also always been about, you know, fashion, entertainment, that stuff too. Most people don't know that, but they do talk about men's fashion. They do talk about uh, different. I actually, I, I vividly remember one of the questions on uh, one of the issues that I was in, there's like a little Q&A thing at the beginning for people to write in. And one of them was, how can I be a stunt car driver? Which was totally cool because, I mean, yeah. I learned a lot from that. But uh, th- they would ask like random questions and stuff for people regarding stuff like that. So it was actually super cool. And before I got published as a model in Playboy, I actually had an article published in Playboy, uh, which wow. I, don't, I don't talk about a whole, whole lot. But I had gotten really upset because <clears throat> while I don't really have a stance on uh abortion like pro-life pro-choice whatever there was an extremely extreme right uh individual his name is randall terry who had an article published in playboy and it upset me because the whole reason i had shot for playboy that i wanted to shoot for playboy and everything was because i found it to be empowering as a woman i found playboy to be empowering and i know we're going to talk about that uh, as the episode goes on but to have someone so extremist, I, I completely respect wanting to have, you know, different opinions and different sides of things. I'm all about that on my YouTube channel too. But when you have someone that's so extremist and almost anti-woman, I, I was just very upset. So I wrote a counter article to his article, giving mm. the other side of kind of like the middle ground slash pro-choice. Cause I'm, I tend to be more uh, more pro-choice, but I'm still pretty middle ground when it comes to that, but I don't take an official stance or anything. So, yeah. Yeah. I had an article published before I, before was, I was this, was this guy Terry's article posted in Playboy as well? Yeah. His or... article was actually published in Playboy and it just shocked me so much that they published yeah. something from an extremist pro-lifer, a pro-lifer. Sure. That's great. I could think of several that I would suggest you know, interviewing if that's what they wanted to do. But this guy is one of those, as I would call them, fetus fanatics. He's not interested in hmm. uh, helping women or in finding ways to lower the, the abortion rate. He's like just very fanatical about it. Very much you're a murderer. And yeah. Oh, I hate, I don't like men like that. Like if you're coming at it strictly from a, I am a, you know, you're a fetus killer if you have an abortion and it's not about, okay, how can we put systems in place that help young mothers actually raise a child, both financially, emotionally, and are you doing actual sex education? Are you preaching abstinence? Like, what is your actual approach to lowering the abortion rate? Because the statistics show that 
uh, teaching abstinence doesn't do any, if anything, it makes it worse because then kids go in unprepared for their first sexual encounter. And that's what raises the abortion amount of abortions and, and need for it. So I could go on a whole spiel on that. <laughs> I, I grew up in Bible Belt, Missouri. I completely understand. I actually did an interview with Abby Johnson not too long ago for my YouTube channel about mental health because there is a whole stigma on people struggling with mental health issues after having had an abortion. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to talk to her about that, even though she's pro-life and I don't, uh, like I said, have an opinion one way or another. I wanted to give voice to these people that might be struggling and have nowhere to go, you know? So mm -hmm. I, I do think that the conversation definitely should stay open. I just think that showcasing extremists is not the way I would go about that. Yeah. And like, I think PTSD is like one of the biggest mental health diagnoses right after an abortion. Just, I mean, you're literally, most women that get like, it, it could be other um, miscarriage too. That happens a lot. I, so. um, it's not an official diagnosis, but uh, people in the community call it PASS, post-abortion stress syndrome. And having been a volunteer at Planned Parenthood for many years and volunteering in the mental health arena for so long and doing so much, it definitely had become, I saw it very, very frequently with women. And the pro-life crowd is like, well, come here. They broke you. They destroyed you. We'll help you. We'll save you. And then the pro-choice crowd is like, well, you must have had some kind of pre-existing condition. So... You just need to go deal with that. So there seemed mm -hmm. to be a very huge, um, like a very huge gap. These women weren't getting the support they needed. And I saw it very frequently and it, it, yeah. it was just so downplayed. And I'm like, that's not okay. It needs to be addressed so that they can get the support that they need. Yeah. Well, it's like when two, two extremes will never come to a logical conclusion typically. No. Uh, but I, I think that's, I didn't know that, that your first ever feature in Playboy was through an article. So was this like way before you even thought about being a model or was this? It was actually like what's, around what's the, the same time. I, I actually don't remember the timeline. Uh, it was around the same time. So this was um, in the same few years. It wasn't like one was way before the other. I also find it interesting that a guy would even write to playboy about that in the first place uh, if it's like coming across as really anti-women and this the it's really the whole purpose of playboy is to sell women bodies like not in that kind of way but it, like it, uh, that just fascinates me too well, the other like, thing i found super fascinating is hugh hefner was one of the biggest uh, supporters of planned parenthood he financially and uh socially gave a lot to Planned Parenthood. He always spoke in support of them. He gave a lot of money. He would appear at some events and stuff uh, in support of them. So it's just very, very strange. I don't know who made that call, but it was just very strange to me. And that's yeah. why I just said, you know what? I'm going to give my my voice from the other side or at least from Did you ever ground. meet Hugh Hef or did you ever go to the Playboy Mansion, I guess? I did. I did get to go to the mansion. Um probably about a year after I shot for them. Maybe it was the same year, but it was within a year after I shot for them. I got to go around, uh, I think it was around Halloween time. I think it was in the fall. I got to go awesome. and I did get to meet Hef. It was super cool. Uh, he was a very, very awesome guy. I know he got a lot of flack when he passed and people said a lot of nasty things about him, but he was very much about helping people. And I can't say, you know, I knew the guy well. I met him. I talked to some people that lived there that knew him. And he was always trying to help, trying to uh, take care of his girls and stuff. I know he paid for several girls' colleges, um, college mm. tuition stuff, and none of them had slept with him. I, I, I talked to them personally, and they, uh, they said that not everyone, you know, that lived at the mansion slept with Hef, and not everybody that 
uh, interacted with him. Not every single bunny slept with him. I never slept with half. I just want to make that clear. Um, <laughs> that, 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 that was a, one of those big misconceptions, one of those rumors that uh, everybody slept with, with Hugh. And it's just, it's not true. He did, mm-hmm. um, obviously, and very publicly have his girlfriends. But uh, th- there were plenty of girls around that he hadn't slept with at all. Yeah. Um, that he still was very protective of, very uh, caring of, very very much wanted to just provide for them. Mm-hmm. It, it, I find it interesting that so many men look up to him too as like a, a role model and not, it wasn't ever really for those things. It was always for the ability to have sex with a lot of women. It, it seemed like that was why people looked up to him. Which is so funny because when you stop to think about it, when you stop to think about Hugh's life, it's kind of like I had a friend who really wanted to be a gynecologist. He's a guy and he really wanted to be a gynecologist because he's like, oh, I just want to see vagina all day. And I said, can you imagine how boring that would be after a while? (laughs) Just staring. I'm bisexual and I'm just like, I can't imagine staring at vaginas all day, even if it's somebody that, you know, I found attractive. And I guess maybe if you're um, a sex addict, perhaps that would be the kind of lifestyle. And I, I definitely understand the allure of wanting to um, be mm-hmm. intimate or whatever with with attractive people. I mean, I have a crush on Tom Ellis. If he happens to be listening, you can reach me on Instagram. <laughs> but <laughs> I, I, I definitely do understand the allure to a certain extent. But that definitely would not be a happy lifestyle in the long run, I don't think. Just sleeping no. with lots of random people. I've actually known people that sleep around and sleep with lots of women. And none of them are happy. None of them are no. really uh, content I, well- in their life. I think it's literally in the intro of my show that I play every, cause I have a clip from Eric Everhard, the porn star I talked to. And he says, no amount of people that you ever sleep with will ever make you happy. Like it does. He slept with over 5,000 women and in his time. And he's just like, it doesn't like, that's not where my happiness comes from, but it's also oh. not where his depression, like I don't think he uses it as a coping mechanism because he's pretty, he seems to be pretty secure with who he is. Yeah, I think that some people do use it as a coping mechanism. Yeah. I've known people that they get out of a marriage, out of a difficult relationship, and they start sleeping around to validate themselves, uh, or, or they want to sleep with attractive yes. people to prove to themselves, oh, I could land this Playboy model, or oh, I could land this Abercrombie model, or whatever the case was. Uh, I can land this celebrity. Some people do have uh, issues with that. Now, yeah. I'm I'm not a person that, that – really cares one way or another what anybody wants to do with their sex life. I think that's really weird to attach to another person's sex life like that. I had so many people first and foremost that assumed that I slept around and I'm pretty sure at the time of Playboy, I could still count all of the people I'd slept with on one hand. And I was in my, um, I was in my early twenties, kind of my Mm. early mid twenties. And it's still, it's still, I can count on both hands. It still hasn't got up above uh, that. But everybody assumed that I slept around. And I was actually always very, very selective. And that shocked people. I was not an overtly sexual person. Uh, Playboy Mm. meant something completely different to me. Uh, It it represented something completely different for me. And I think that was something that was kind of interesting about Playboy is it meant something different for everybody. There were some people that just wanted to look at boobs. And that's okay. There's some people that wanted to look at the articles. I had a lot of people that would message me about my charity work because I was doing Mm. a lot of charity work at the time for wolf conservation. Uh, So I had a lot of people at the time that I was doing that, that were messaging me about my charity work and like very interested in that. I'm like, but, but my, my boobs, (laughs) like my boobs, (laughs) you know, Uh, I'm just kidding. It was, it was awesome to, uh, to get those messages and stuff, but I actually ended up staying friends with some of the people 
that reached out to me because they weren't creepy. They weren't, yeah, so I saw your vagina in Playboy. You want to talk? Yeah. Um, no, no, I don't. <laughs> well, like if you reach out to people with genuine interest in their life, I feel like they want to, like you're not connecting with them because of that thing. You're you're connecting with them on a deeper level. Like it, it'd be the same if I reached out to um like Justin Bieber and I just said like you're some good looking dude and oh you don't like Justin Bieber? Not really. Oh it's man. Not my taste. He, and in terms of attractiveness, I mean not anymore. I mean I think he's kind of got that rugged look, but um I think he's a fascinating human being. But it, it, it's like if I reached out to him and said I really want to connect with you about you know, your, your darker days as a teenager and what that was like for you versus, Hey, I really like your music. Like a lot of people like his music, but not a lot of people want to connect with him on a deeper level. Right. Like to me, it's the same kind of thing. Well, it's funny because when I was saying, I've been doing these celebrity interviews and a few months ago, I interviewed Billy Bob Thornton and I didn't know really everything about him, but I'd done, you know, a little bit more research. So I would know more when I went into the interview and I've been listening to his this band he did called the Box Masters. He's in this band, and that's his passion project. That's what he really enjoys doing. And he'd approved me for a 10-minute interview, but the first thing I wanted to talk about was the band. I ended up getting to talk to him for an hour because mm. I talked about his passion. I went into it on his passion, and then we kind of talked about other stuff, or I just ended up talking, I was telling you, uh, to Jamie Bennington, Chester Bennington's son, and I wasn't like, oh, my God, your dad was so awesome even though, I mean, obviously Chester was pretty awesome, but Jamie is an awesome person in his own right. And he has talent in his own right. And I reached out to him and was talking to him about that. We did obviously talk about his dad too, and his grief and um, his own mental health struggles and stuff. But when you, when you take genuine interest in a person and their interests, instead of just what it is they're oh, known yeah. for, yeah, you're going to have a lot better uh, chance connecting with them and, or having them Always. respond to you. Yeah. Everyone is a human first. And if you can connect with them, like I, part of my day job is I get to connect with senior vice presidents at fortune 500 companies. And I almost never ask them about work first because man, you talk about work all, all day. Yeah. Let's talk about something else. Let's talk about your favorite vacation spot. I don't know. I'll just throw them like a really, I'll say on, on LinkedIn or Twitter, I saw something that they did and I thought it was fascinating and they're just, they might find it creepy, but then we talk about whatever and I get them on the phone for a while. Um, but you did allude to the reason why you got into playboy. Let's get into that now. It is a heavy topic. Trigger warning for, I guess, those who might be um, caught off guard by this, but we are going to talk about rape and sexual assault. Um, so, Amanda, I, I'm really curious about what your story is and how you got into Playboy. Because I think to me and to a lot of men, or I won't even speak for them, for me, I think it's a really fascinating story and, and how you look at the narrative of being in Playboy. So I, I'd, I'd just like to ask uh, you to share your story with me now. So when I was 16, I was raped by a classmate. And at the time, it kind of just threw my life into upheaval. I dropped out of school. I was in my junior year. And I dropped out because I just didn't want to see his face anymore. I didn't want to have to confront him. I didn't want to have to see him. I didn't want to have to have anything to do with him. And on a whim, I just went into school and dropped out. And I, th I think that was the first step of letting him have my power. You know, I said, I'm, I'm afraid of him. I'm afraid of facing him. I'm afraid of being around him. But I was 16 years old. And I mean, that's kind of a normal place to be at 16. That's a normal response. I mean, that would be a normal response at any age. But when you're so young and uh, just, I don't want to say naive, but you just, I just didn't know how to handle it. And I fell into partying for quite some time. I did try to get into a couple of other relationships that didn't work out, but um, I, I noticed that 
in these subsequent relationships, it was very hard for me to be intimate. It was like the, the first relationship I was in after him, it took us months to even kiss. And it was, Mm. it was a very long process to be able to be physical with anyone. And I had to really gain uh, trust in this person. And I guess that's part of the reason that I hold sexuality in such a high uh, regard because this was my first time, you know, my first time was, was taken from me as something that was supposed Mm -hmm. to be special. I will say though, that when I talk about quote unquote, losing my virginity, I do refer to that in the the time when I actually gave it to a person because I'm not going to, again, I, I don't want now to give my assailant the power in saying that he took this from me. I gave it mm-hmm. when I was ready to give it. Uh, but yeah, I fell pretty hard into partying. I just didn't know how to cope. I started drinking, smoking pot a lot, uh, smoking cigarettes. And to be truthfully honest, I don't remember a lot about that part of my life. It was very blurry. I know there were a couple really rocky relationships. Uh, there was one in there, one or two in there of guys that I really did care about. It's just, I wasn't in a healthy place and it didn't work out. And when were, I were these, were these guys aware of yes. the, of the rape? Okay. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I think it's very, I, I think I was aware even then that it's very important to tell people because I knew that I wasn't going to be ready for anything for a while. And it was very important to tell them, you know, this is what happened. So I'm probably not going to want to have sex with you for quite some time. So if you can handle that, then we mm-hmm. can, uh, then we can report, but yes, they didn't know. Um, but when I kind of came out of this haze, I was 20 and I just, I, I, it's almost like I woke up and I went, what the hell? Like I had a felony on my record. I had these disaster relationships, no job, nothing to speak of for being 20 years old. Absolutely nothing. My dad was terminal and I was, I was partially ashamed, partially guilty, partially afraid. I just had all of these emotions going on and I didn't know what to do. I was smoking cigarettes a lot uh, because that's really, I was smoking cigarettes a lot and I was listening to Linkin Park pretty much nonstop. I mean, that was my thing since I was 16 anyway. That was my one uh, coping mechanism. But I remember going outside and I went to smoke a cigarette and I come back inside and my dad said, I can't believe that you can watch me lay here and die and still light up a cigarette. And of course, then that kicks up more feelings of guilt and stuff. I went to my room and I remember the song Don't Stay by Lincoln Park was on my stereo. I mean, the stereo literally was going like all the time on, on random yeah. repeat. Uh, and the song Don't Stay was on. Um, and the beginning part of it is um, sometimes I need to remember just to breathe. And I remember putting my hand in my pocket. It says, sometimes I need you to stay away from me. And I uh, pulled out my cigarettes and just like threw them at the wall and completely panicked. I found a journal where I'd written all these suicide notes during this, what I call now kind of my lost years. And I made a list in this journal. I flipped past all of that. And I made this list of, okay, this is what I need to do to get my life back on track. This is what I need to do to get my life back uh, in order. So it was like, get a job, go get some brochures from the local community college, quit smoking, et cetera. So... I'm feeling empowered. I'm feeling confident. I have a plan. I go try and get a part-time job. I go pick up the brochures. I go buy some stuff to, to help me quit smoking and everything. And my dad died. So of course this just throws everything right back up into the unknown and into panic. And I, I really struggled again, getting through this because I was still, I mean, this was a couple years later, several years later, but I was still coping 
with a sexual assault. I'd never even dealt with that. So I was not even really coping obviously because I was Mm -hmm. just partying and stuff, but then my dad dies. So I spend the next couple of years really trying to come to terms with that. And my mom dies. So when did your mom die in this timeline? 22. So at 16 was the sexual assault at 20. My Mm -hmm. dad died at 22. uh, My mom passed away. And Shooting for Playboy was always something that I wanted to do. I had been doing modeling and stuff and shooting for Playboy was always a goal of mine. It was always a dream, but I never really had any, any hope in it because I was very ridiculed growing up. I was always told I was too fat and literally guys, I know you can't see me, but I weigh like 105 pounds soaking wet. All right. (laughs) But I was told I was too fat. My boobs weren't big enough. It was always something. My my skin wasn't clear enough. Uh, There was always something. People always uh, ridiculed me and and gave me 101 reasons why I wasn't good enough. So of course I absolutely just in my brain thought that I'd never be good enough for playbook, but it was something I wanted to do. And it's so weird how it came about and I, I realize now, I don't even remember why I had been kind of dwelling on it. I think I just wanted to prove to myself, A, that um, that I could still be something without my parents. Like, I was still my own person. I still had my own identity. And I was wanting to prove something to myself. And at the mm-hmm. same time, all of this grief was really getting kicked up. Like, the grief of the rape, the grief of losing my parents, everything was just kind of getting kicked up all at once. And at the time, I was volunteering at um, Planned Parenthood, I think, around that time, or at least getting into that uh, movement in my early 20s, which I don't uh, align with that anymore. But I I was getting into that, and I started thinking about how much power I had given him. He gave me the power to drop out of school, or like he took my power, and I dropped out of school. He took my power, and I hated myself. I hated myself on so many levels. I thought that I was unattractive. I thought that I was unworthy. I didn't deserve a healthy relationship. I really just had horrible, horrible self-esteem and self-worth issues. And I really started uh, looking into how I would go about submitting and stuff. And I thought, oh, this is one of those processes. There's no way this is going to happen. And I was working a part-time job at a smoke shop, like this little tiny smoke shop in Sacramento, California, or just outside Sacramento, California. And I didn't even smoke pot or anything. I I did do cocaine on and off at that time, and it made it very easy to get that, unfortunately. But I was at the smoke shop, and this guy came in, and I was talking to him about these goals, about my my aspiration and my dream to be a playboy. And I had a lot of long nights there where there weren't a whole, whole lot of clients and I could just chat with the people that came in and I'm sitting there talking to him and he tells me, that's crazy. Cause I'm a photographer for Playboy. You should send me some of your pictures. I'm like, Oh yeah, you're a photographer for Playboy. I'm only just sending you my nudie pictures, right? Like how many times yeah. in my life have I heard something like this? Just send me your nudie pictures and I'll make you famous. So he was, he was an older guy. And at the end of the day, I'd done some nude modeling anyway. So I didn't really care if, if somebody saw uh, the pictures. It had never been anything I wanted to do, truthfully. It was just stuff that I'd done for money and I still had a lot of shame attached to it, which is tragic. But the more I thought about Playboy, the more it was, this is the me I want to express. Playboy's not I never looked at it as porn. I never looked at it as anything trashy. I mean, they do have some some spreads that I definitely uh, would have been beyond my comfort level. I'll just put it that way. But I always thought it was very tasteful. It was very glamorous. It was very 
um, it was very empowering. Like I just always had looked at Playboy. I'd, I'd read mm-hmm. Playboy since I was a teenager, <laughs> looked at the pictures and I always thought it was very empowering. So yeah, this guy tells me I'm a photographer. So I send him some pictures. I just go take some snapshots and him some pictures over the next couple days. And he ended up, I, I don't know exactly how that process went. I guess he shared the pictures with his, um, with his superiors or the powers that be. Yeah. And uh, I ended up getting invited to shoot for them, which was just insane because yeah. people go and apply by the thousands when they had their events. I had seen a couple of the Playboy events. One of my really good friends uh, had tried out that way. And there were like hundreds of thousands of girls at these events. So to think that me just working my shift one night at a job that I didn't even yep. care about, I, I think I kind of attracted this, you know, into my life because I wanted it and I wanted it for a good reason. It wasn't, I want to be famous. Preach. Yeah, it wasn't, I want to be famous. It wasn't, I, I I want money because it wasn't all that much money first and foremost, but um, it was, I am done letting I'm going to say his name. This is the first time I've ever said his name, actually. I'm going to stop letting Drew have my power. And Mm. this is the first time I said his name on a podcast. Um, And it was so incredible getting to go there. And these people that get labeled as perverts, these photographers get labeled as perverts, but almost every 10 seconds it was, are you sure comfortable? Are you okay? Can, Can I adjust you? Can I do this? Or can she adjust you? And there was so much uh consent I guess they were so big on consent and so big on making sure that I was comfortable and that I wasn't doing anything that I didn't want to do that after a little bit it almost started to get patronizing because I'm sitting there like yes I'm sure that this is what I want to do I promise you I I flew to Los Angeles Mm. you know you flew me to Los Angeles but it was it was just crazy that for, for these people that get labeled as perverts these people that get uh degraded for their job of showing the, the naked form in a beautiful, beautiful way. I loved my pictures. I thought that they were very uh, tastefully done. I think that they, they really, they really did show like an energy in me that mm-hmm. that I just don't get to show very often. That I just don't get to um, release, I suppose, very yeah. often. So it was very, yeah, it was very cathartic. It was that moment where I, I actually physically remember taking my clothes off and the whole time sitting there going, fuck you, fuck you. Sorry if this is, <laughs> if I'm not supposed to go. No, it's not a clean, okay. not a clean podcast. <laughs> okay. I was like, fuck you. I'm done. I'm done with you having this power over me. I think that's such a beautiful story. Thank, I'm honored to be the first podcast that you've shared his name on. Um and I, that's one of the main reasons I believe in, in sharing my goals and aspirations with a lot of people is because you never know who's going to be in the right place at the right time. That's one. Um, but I'm really curious about, you know, did going back to kind of the beginning of the story, did your school know and did your parents know that that you were raped? The school did not. Unfortunately, I did not report it. And I know in retrospect mm-hmm. that that was a mistake. But again, I was 16. I was panicked. I was scared. My mom didn't find out immediately. She did find out within a few weeks or months. She did find out in the long run. And the exact reason I didn't want her to find out is pretty much what happened. She just fell apart and blamed herself. But we did both agree, don't tell dad, because my dad would have literally murdered the guy. My dad was a Vietnam veteran, and he probably could have just went and killed him and went, uh, sorry, PTSD. And he would have. I'm not exaggerating. I'd probably do it, too. Oh, yeah. If it was even if it was just a friend, like, even if it was a friend, I I honestly wouldn't care. 
I, and I, I, I asked that because, um, I, I, to, to ask like why you're, you regret not reporting it. Like I'm reading know my name. I don't know if you know the book by Chanel Miller, the Brock Turner's victim right now. Yes. And I have to read it 10 pages at a time because I get really angry and I'm not even like, I, you, like I've only met people that have been raped through this podcast. You're the second victim, uh, person I've talked to that's been raped, and I still feel that way. Like when you were talking about having no self worth, I, I teared up. Um, I, I, I'm curious about why you think it's a regret not to report it, based off of everything I've read in that book and the, just the horror show that goes that you face as a as a victim as a victim of rape. Well, first of all, I really like that you had corrected saying victim because I always I don't really care what people say, but yeah. I always like to say survivor because I don't think of myself as a victim anymore. I used to. Um, and it's kind of like the whole difference between saying I'm clean or I'm in recovery from cocaine. I don't care. I'll say anything. But apparently that's not appropriate anymore. Um, you're supposed to say I'm yeah. in recovery. But like I said, I was 16. I was scared. I was panicked. And I'd seen, you know, on the on news and TV shows and movies even people I knew, I'd known girls that had reported uh, being sexually assaulted and it was extremely hard for them because they couldn't prove it. They couldn't prove it was rape. They couldn't prove it wasn't consensual. So they would take them to court and then had to watch you know, their rapist walk free. And in my head, I was scared because I thought, well, if he ends up getting vindictive, if he goes free and he gets vindictive, is he going to hurt me? But then I realized that I was constantly scared of this anyway. I was constantly for, frankly, years mm. terrified that this guy was just lurking around somewhere waiting uh, to strike again, you know? And the reason I regret it so deeply is I find I found out that he wa I wasn't his only uh, person, that a friend of mine, a mm. girl that I knew, uh, he had done the same to her. And I just think if, if, if I had reported it, even if he didn't get tried, even if he wasn't found guilty, would that have scared him enough that he wouldn't have attacked her, that he wouldn't have done this to her? So mm. I, I had a lot of guilt surrounding that for a long time. And I did talk to her. I actually didn't find this out uh, till a bit later, but I talked to her about it and uh, she, she obviously didn't blame me in any way. And we, we made peace, but it was just so hard knowing that I didn't do what needed to be done. Even if the system would have failed me, even if the system would have let him go, I deserved my day. I deserved my chance. I deserved to tell my story to people that would listen. And I guess now mm. in coming on podcasts like this and talking to people like you, I, I, I feel like I get that justice. I feel like I get the opportunity to tell my story and if for whatever reason, by some random chance, he is listening to this, which would be kind of interesting, uh, but I know he knows who I am. And uh, if he is listening to this, I just want him to know that I do not spend a single instant worrying about him anymore or thinking about him. As a matter of fact, I forgive him. I feel sorry for him because there had to have been something broken in him that would make him do something like that to someone like me or to someone like my friend. There had to be something wrong in him. And I hope that whatever it was that was broken, he found healing. He found peace. I don't wish any harm on him. I used to hate him. I used to hate him with every fiber of my being, but this point in my life, he's not worth even thinking about. Hatred takes energy and he's not worth that. He's not worth thinking about. Mm. He's not worth giving energy to. There's no part of me that is stuck in that moment anymore. I used to be, no. I used to be stuck in the moment. Uh, there's, 
I, I very vividly remember that the song that was playing when it happened was Chop Soy by System of a Down. And I, to this day, hate that song. I don't like that song. But I, I remember being terrified for a long time of, oh God, am I going to hear the song? Am I going to be triggered? And it's kind of interesting because the only comfort I found during the time that it was happening, because it was, it was quite violent. It was quite brutal, um, quite painful. And the only comfort I could find was I closed my eyes and people are probably going to think this is insane, but I closed my eyes and I started picturing Chester's flame tattoos because this was like a symbol of comfort for me. I'd been listening to a uh, hybrid theory for a while at that point. And it was just this weird uh, comfort. Like the music was a weird comfort and Chester was kind of a symbol of comfort. And I just remember sitting there and like envisioning those tattoos and just like thinking, where do they turn? What, what color is where, you know, and it just gave me something mm. to focus on till it was over. And I remember trying to think of other music, other smells, just going somewhere else in my mind, because that's, that's really all you can do. You just, you leave yourself. You, you're not there. You're not in your body yeah. anymore. Yeah. And I, I liked how you um, talked about the survivor versus the victim thing. Cause that was actually going to be my next question. So now I don't have to ask it anymore. <laughs> uh, but uh, like, it's just as like as someone who hasn't even experienced it and reading about people's cases and hearing about people's cases, it it blows my mind how people are able to commit such acts. And, you know, for I would ne- that's why I never blame women for not reporting it to the system, because everything that I'm reading so far and everything that you've been describing and everything that every woman I've talked to that has gone through that experience like the system just uplifts the man for a while and says, but, 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 and all these things. Oh, did you want it? Did you like, what, how did you go and provoke the situation into happening in the first place? It's never from the point of maybe the guy just shouldn't have done it. Maybe the guy should have asked for consent. Maybe the guy is a fucking piece of shit. And that never seemed to be, part of the conversation which is why i think the system is so broken because it never even made you feel safe like not even just you didn't feel safe but even if you went to the system you didn't feel safe and and what what does that say and obviously like there's a fine line between innocent until proven guilty but when the process to confirm guilt sucks with these rape kits that are like years behind being processed and i've read a couple books about it it's overall just fucked and I liked how you talked about forgiveness too, is because I, on sun, this past Sunday, which won't be this past Sunday when this actually goes live in the podcasting world, that's what we're used to. I interviewed another survivor and she talks about forgiveness and she said, as soon as she forgave, that's when she healed. And I, I liked how you brought that up too. My healing actually came, I mean, it started with Playboy. That was a huge part of me taking my power back. And that's when I started to take my power back. And that kind of triggered the healing process. But I think something that was really, really cool, I know something that was very, very cathartic for me was I've been writing a book and I just snagged a literary agent. So I'm pretty excited. Uh, they, they suspect awesome. it's going to come out in spring of next year, but it's called One More Light. Uh, and it, it is in honor of, of Chester. Uh, One More Light was Linkin Park's last album before he uh, lost his life to suicide. And... Um, it does talk about this in there. It does talk about the sexual assault. And that to me was probably the most, that, that was where I really let go. That was where I really found the forgiveness because when mm. I wrote about it and it is, it was violent, like I said, and I realized how broken he had to be to be this person 
I just stopped and said, you know, I, I can't be angry at a monster. You know, I can't be, I can't sit here and spend the rest of my life hating someone who, as you said, is really just kind of a piece of shit. He's a, he's not a good human being, obviously, or at least he, he isn't doing what he needs to do to be, um, to be a good human being. I do think that there's definitely um, something to be said. I, I have known, this is really weird. I did know one guy who, uh, was a rapist and he realized that what he did was wrong and that he wanted to get better he wanted to heal and i hope with everything in me that drew also found that and he wanted to you know get better and heal i truthfully do i very much hope for his sake and you know any other girls out there and the other thing that was super healing for me was a few years ago i'm in the valley in arizona and phoenix and this happened about three and a half hours away from here when i was a teenager i lived up in a mountain town and I've lived in a couple uh, other cities and states since then, but I ended up coming back to Arizona and Facebook decided to friend suggest him to me. Mm. And I'm just sitting there at the time I was not, you know, super far in the healing process. I'd already done Playboy and I was already like better with myself, but seeing his name just really was unsettling to me. And I click on the profile and I find out that he's working at a school at a high school and I just went, oh, hell no. And even though I'd never filed a report, I called the Board of Education, like I contacted the Board of Education. And I said, look, I'm willing to come and make a statement. I'm willing to write a letter. I'm willing to do whatever. You need to fire this guy immediately because this is what happened. I'm willing to file the case now, like if I have to, just to reopen. I don't care that it's like a decade and a half later. Mm-hmm. Whatever I have to do, get this guy the hell out of your school because I, I will do whatever I have to do if it means protesting outside your school every day. I, I'm worried about the safety of your students and Arizona is a right to work state. So you don't need a reason to fire anyone. So they did uh, end up firing him. They did end up. Uh, and that was, that was kind of another thing that mm-hmm. felt like justice to me. You know, I, I maybe protected someone else that he would have attacked because he had easy access, you know, to all of these people. And he was on some level, an authority figure. I don't know what his position was there, but working at a school, you kind of become an authority figure, even if you're, you know, the janitor. Uh, so, mm-hmm. That, that was part of my of my healing and justice process as well and something that gave me a lot of closure. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. And, and then I, I know that when you went to um, Playboy, I, I find this idea really fascinating is the ownership of sexual identity or the, their own sexualization. And I love that you're coming at it from a place of I took my body back. And I know that based off of our initial conversation is that there was certain poses that you would do and certain poses that you wouldn't do. And those were typically ones that were empowering poses, correct? Yes. So what was your thought process around that? And and like, why wouldn't you do some of the other ones? Because to me, it was, it was sexual, obviously it was sensual. It's supposed to be empowering. And for me, I just never found like, here's a spread shot. You can see my labia. I just never found that particularly empowering. And I guess that's just a matter of personal preference. But it was more of, here's my body. This is me, you know, and I don't give a damn what you think. Uh, it was it was more along those lines than let me give you fap material. Now, I, I fully, fully accept and understand that plenty of people fapped my pictures. I get that. I don't care. But it... it it was the message that I sent, the message that was coming from my heart. Because I fully believe when you make art, be it music or images or whatever, there's there's 
something to be said about it should be your own message and your own um your own interpretation your own way of showing your own style and my style was just more of the artistic more of the classy more of the the traditional types of nude photos because there are some girls and they never the, the interesting thing about that is is they never encourage you to do that they never say okay bend over spread your legs whatever the girls that do that are the girls that want to i never once at any of like i, I kind of stood by and watched some of the other girls shoot too because there was a couple other girls there never once did anyone say that the girls might have done it on their own but none of them um asked for it so i, I guess another question i'd have based off of that is what do you think like this is one conversation that I think a lot of men have with themselves, or at least I know that I feel conflicted about sometimes is one, yes, women empowerment is great, but two, there is a level of sexualization that at some point you, you can't control what, how people respond. Like you, you can't always control how people respond to that sexualization. Now that does not excuse rapists and sexual assaulters. I'm not saying that those are those actions are like obviously those aren't validated but there is this idea that oh if a guy is looking at you because you're sexualizing yourself then it's the guy can be creepy i don't know like that seems to happen quite a bit in the tiktok world now the tick the fact that that's even a thing the fact that that phrase exists makes me kind of lose faith in humanity but i i, <laughs> I will say that again i'm kind of i'm kind of middle ground and i know that this isn't what women want to hear but do I think I can be walking naked down the street right now, but naked. And if a guy mm -hmm. tries to approach me and I say, no, you need to stop. They need to stop. No ifs, ands, or buts. However, yes. I do think, as you said, there is a, a level of personal accountability and responsibility that if you are wearing mini skirts and really low cut shirts, if that's you, you do you. That's fine. I don't care. I'm not going to judge you. I'm not saying you're asking for it, but I know the kind of attention it does bring. See, with Playboy, I never actually got any kind of real bad attention or, or stalkers or creepy messages. And I'm sure some people did, but I did not. I did get stalkers over other things in my life. I have had stalkers, but uh, Playboy was not what triggered them, interestingly enough. And I, I just think that you know, we do, we do have to, we have to think about the consequences of our actions to a certain degree. So if I go and I drink alcohol, I know that there's a possibility that I'm not going to feel good tomorrow. It's not, a, it's not certainty, but it's a possibility that I'm not going to feel good tomorrow. And if I wear like really skimpy clothes, it's a possibility that people are going to look at me in a way that I don't like and that I don't want them to. And mm -hmm. sure, at the same time, there's people, I know a couple people that have foot fetishes. And if you like flip your shoe off and on, I know the, the listeners can't see me, but if you kind of flip your shoe off and on your heel, that can turn on someone with a foot fetish. Does that mean I'm going to be super conscientious every time I'm sitting at a picnic table, like flipping my shoe? No, but people will get turned on by things and there's not nothing really we can do to, to stop that people get turned on by lots of different things, but just being conscientious, conscientious of the potential consequences of things like that. Um, I definitely, if I ever had a daughter would teach her to be not necessarily, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, 
when you dress um, oh my gosh conservative conservative not conservative or anything but to just be conscientious of what kind of a message that's portraying because I took fashion design in, in high school for a while and there are certain messages that clothes send there there absolutely are certain messages even you know if you're wearing bell bottoms or if you're wearing uh specific stripes versus versus polka dots or something there are mm. messages there are uh there are things yeah connotations or interpretations of certain things uh and just yeah just knowing that that's a possibility and if nothing else if you still want to dress like that i'm not saying to to think badly of yourself or to accept that you're going to get raped i'm saying that if you want to dress like that carry a fucking gun carry a knife carry a pepper spray know that it is a possibility and protect yourself accordingly yeah like even that like even with that it it's i I want to work on culture and I, that's the, that's the high level thing of what I want to do here is, is make sure that men know that those women are always off limits, touch anything, anything like that. At the, bio, biologically, men are also physical creatures where if we see something, I don't really control whether or not I get a hard on or not. A lot of the time, like it, it, that's not how it works. My response to that is it's like, if you see a woman breastfeeding, I fully owned that when I was breastfeeding, when I was trying to breastfeed my son, I owned that people were going to look. And if you are a guy and you see a girl and you're like, Oh, there's a boob or you see cleavage or you see something skimpy. Look, I probably looked, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, yeah. it's human nature to look. It's human nature for your eyes to be drawn to cleavage. It's human nature to be curious just don't be creepy about it. Like, good Lord, it shouldn't be that yeah. hard to not stare when the woman, you know, has her breast out or something. The guy yeah. and you, you see an attractive guy or you see maybe a guy at the park. I've seen a guy at the park with the shirt off and I definitely glance, but I'm not sitting there oogling him going, oh, maybe I could, maybe I can get his attention. Yeah. Maybe. With, the, yeah. With your hand in your pants or anything like that. Right. I, there's just, there's levels of, of manners, people like, yeah. I, it's, I get it's that like you can't control me, your boner, but you can control yeah. how you act. It's like don't write a comment saying, "Oh my goodness, I'm gonna go to my bedroom now," or "I gotta," or "Hey, open it." Like there's a there was a trend about I gotta open up Safari or Incognito tab on on TikToks of of hot girls, and my I guess my more of my problem doesn't even lie with the fact that they are sexualizing themselves. My, my problem lies in the fact that they respond to men who then sexualize them in ways that are like, why are you sexualizing me? And it's like, you're sexualizing yourself. I'm just responding to the message that you put out there. Like if a girl, like there's trends and dances that are strictly to shake ass and like wear tight clothing and literally, literally are to show off what they look like in bed from from different angles and, and i'm like what do you think a guy's going to respond to that with he's going to say you're hot oh my god i want that done with me like you are sexualizing yourself and the guy's comments will be creepy but i mean what do you expect he's obviously not thinking about your brains like and 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 what like to me it's the same as if i read or looked at a at a playboy magazine and i i just saw a naked picture of you and there's no context there's no caption i'm like okay this girl is hot right like there's nothing beyond that that i i'm not gonna be like oh i wonder what her morals are <laughs> oh i wonder what what's her like, favorite i wonder food? what she does with wolf con conversation like con what was the word con conversation yeah conversation wolf. 
Oh, conservation. Yeah, so Wolf conservation, gonna, yeah. Conservation. Yeah, not conversation. Conservation. I always switch up the S and the V on that one. I'm like, I'm not going to question that because there's no context to that. So I, I it always like my my response to the sexualization from men when they sexualize themselves is more what makes me upset. You know what my biggest question in all of this is? Is to the guys that are making this comments. Has this ever worked for you? Have you ever messaged a girl on TikTok and said, man, those tits? Or have you ever Googled at some girl in the grocery store and she has just went home and banged you? Has this ever genuinely worked for you? (laughs) I need to know. I need to know if this is actually funny story. I'll tell you guys a funny story. So for a while I sold uh, Pure Romance. I was a Pure Romance consultant, which is adult accessories, like dildos, vibrators, that sort of thing, right? And I had the sticker Mm. on the back of my car and... This guy messages me, I shit you not, texts me and says, hey, I'm such and such years old, drug and disease free, bald, and very discreet. You want to meet up in the park? And he, he said something to the effect of, you're very attractive. I just drove by you. And I messaged back and said, has this ever fucking worked for you? Have you ever texted some girl off of the phone number on the back of her car and had her come hook up with you in a park somewhere? No. Nope. <laughs> Like there's no, I actually know funny, funny enough, one of my old friend's parents, they, he cat called the what, like now his wife and that's how they got together. But this was like 30 years ago when there was no online dating and it seemed like everything was grease lightning and you could do that. And it wasn't so, uh, socially awkward anymore, uh, or, or then, but, um, no, I don't think other than that, there's ever a story I've heard of cat calling that worked. And even then, I think it's really interesting that that kind of behavior can be acceptable if the guy's attractive enough to do it. Like, does that make sense? I mean, if Tom Ellis right now just started whistling at me from the park, I probably, yes, would. Maybe it is. Maybe that's it. Maybe it's a they're trying to boost their ego, boost their confidence thing to see if the girl will flirt back. But I'm telling you, if you're wanting a girl to flirt with you, unless you look like Tom Ellis, that's not the way to go by out about it. And even then, I mean, that would take a specific type of girl that would even respond to that. I, I just yeah. really have a thing for British accents and six-pack abs. And Amanda, I'm trying to work on my game, but COVID has been hard. <laughs> so I don't even know if I could talk to a girl in public anymore without raising some some questions about myself. Well, can you I'd fake like, a decent I'd British be... accent? That's the question. Yeah, I don't even want to try. <laughs> I was gonna try, but I I don't want my I don't want my listeners to laugh at me right now, so I'm just gonna stay away from the attempt. I can uh, I'm really cute. I don't know. That's kind of what I got going for me. I go there. You have the Prince Charming I, hair. I can, you know? cute. can you do the Prince Charming hair? Well, for? that's just for that, that's just for you. Um, I'd have to take out my well. Let me just take out my headphones. Oh my god! Actually, did you ever watch Boy Meets World growing up in the '90s? I don't know if you remember that show. No. I know that there's people that are listening to the show. So Boy Meets World was the show of the 90s for for tween girls. But there was a character on there. uh, It was Ryder Strong. The actor was Ryder Strong. The character's name was Sean Hunter. You kind of have Sean Hunter hair. So my my 12-year-old self is getting a little randy right now. He's Googling Sean Hunter friends. Sean Hunter. Oh, I do. Wow. I don't really. He looks like he could be in Grease Lightning. (laughs) I don't have curly hair like that, though. No, that's Corey. Corey has the curly hair. Oh, uh, there's does he kind of look like a ginger? This guy. I don't think he looks. Sean, this this Sean guy I'm looking up has pretty curly hair or like wavy. It's about your length and wavy, yeah. Because Corey is the main character on Boy Meets World, and he has like those little tiny Jerry curls. (sighs) 
I'm definitely no main character, so Sean makes more sense for me. Sean. I feel like I'm, a, I'm not a main character of the story. I actually remember talking to my friend because uh, my friend likes the show too, and they did a reboot of it a few years ago. And I had got to talk to uh, William Daniels for my YouTube channel. He's uh, Mr. Feeney on the show. And uh, one of my friends was talking, and she, he's like, you know, I think that the problem in your dating world started when you picked Sean over Corey when you were 12. And I'm like, you know, you're not wrong because Sean's like the bad boy, rebellious type. And Corey's like the goody, goody type that would never, ever lie or do anything wrong. And I'm like, you know, you're not wrong. I probably (laughs) did. Okay. So, so hair wise, I'm Sean, but look like personality wise, I might be more on the Corey side. I'm definitely more the nice, not as rambunctious and, and bad boy vibes. I'm, I'm very much a good boy vibes. That's probably a good thing though, because Corey, yeah, Corey yeah. was the one that ended up in a stable relationship with kids and stuff. So that'll be me. That'll be me. Before you go, another question I have is how, like, I'm really curious how your relationship and your, your, um, portrayal or expectation men changed because of your like because of your survivor story like did that change at all and and with your husband are you do you have a husband yes now? yes yeah yeah so how has that changed with your husband now in like i said in the beginning when after it first happened when i was still in that victim mentality i had a very hard time being intimate with people when it came to this relationship i did have to you know let i still obviously let him know in the beginning And things did have um, a very interesting dynamic in the sense of uh, having to say, there's going to be things that I'm just not comfortable with. And sometimes I just get anxiety and I'm going to need to stop and I need to be okay with that. Uh, And just being uh, open about it in the beginning when I was a teenager, it was a little bit harder, even though uh, the first guy, the guy that I gave my virginity to, he was pretty mature for his age. It was still, there was a very weird dynamic about it. But um, in, in my marriage, it's that there's never a time I would never feel like there was a time that I would say, I don't want to do this or I'm not comfortable or can we please just stop where I would feel awkward or I would feel that it was um, a burden or, you know, something mm. that that he would judge me for. And he's going to go, oh, my God, I have to like that. And I have a wife and blah, blah, blah. I, I never feel um, threatened by that or upset by that. So it definitely did t- take some time uh, for me to get to that place. And then I was I was also in a pretty emotionally abusive relationship through my 20s. Uh, and, and I want to say the very, very, no, it was just my 20s. So just in my 20s, um, I was in a very, very emotionally abusive relationship, which kind of even screwed me up more as far as self-worth and self-esteem. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when I got out of that and I found someone who you know, accepted my boundaries. It's so, 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 so important to set boundaries in a relationship. I always preach that to my friends who kind of have a tendency to not do that. Uh, And then they end up miserable because they'll say, well, he did this and it really scared me or made me feel uncomfortable. Did he know that it scared you or made you feel uncomfortable? No. Well then. Mm. Uh, So being, yeah, being able to have grown to know what I like, what I don't like, what's, uh, upsets me what scares me and being in a relationship where I can express those things and not feel afraid not feel awkward not feel stupid yeah I I I have a great sex Mm. life now my sex life now is perfectly fine perfect shout out to your uh shout out to your husband hello Eric (laughs) (laughs) good men out there uh support women that have been hurt and know that they don't hate all men I 
Stop thinking that women hate all men when they say kill all men. They do not hate all men. No, I'm not. I'm not a man hater. And I will say, I know this is not going to be a popular opinion uh, and I might get some flack for this, but I am not a super big proponent of the way the Me Too movement has gone. I think it was a great, mm. um, I think it was really great in the beginning, but I think that it kind of got hijacked that now it's, well, you need to believe all women and they just need to prosecute men. And I saw this post that said, well, if a woman accuses you of rape, you just need to take it for all of the men that never got convicted. And I'm standing there going, the hell is wrong yeah, with there you are all? some. There are some crazy opinions out there. Yeah. And I'm all about, just to be clear, innocent till proven guilty. I do think, though, the most important thing, if someone comes to you and says that they have been sexually assaulted, believe them. Like, by all means, believe yeah. them. But the guy also does deserve his day in court if he's uh, accused of something. I'm very much also for a man's rights to a fair trial, you know, of, of being able to uh, speak out and being able to ask these people. Cause think about it right now. I could say, Hey, Luke, hashtag me too. He, he said these inappropriate things. He came to my house and tried to be inappropriate. Like it's so easy for me to say those things mm. with absolutely no um, evidence whatsoever. But I do think, yeah, they need to, they need to really uh, be more, be more on doing the rape kits in a timely ma manner. They need to have better grief counselors uh, in school and stuff that mm -hmm. are equipped to handle with this, handle these things. I think that officers need to be better trained in handling sexual assault cases. And uh, the therapists need to be better able to not only question the woman, but question the man to find out whether or not, you know, he is being dishonest. Cause you can, a, a professional can usually mm -hmm. tell, you know, if a guy's, if a guy's lying, uh, a good professional mm -hmm. will be able to tell. And I think there's a lot that can be done to improve the situation, to improve the conversation. We do definitely need to keep sharing our stories, but we can't just arrest every single yeah. guy who's ever accused of it. And and that's a real fear that I think a lot of men have. And one, if that's why that's why I'm a, almost a really big advocate of not sleeping around, as you never know. Like that is the same thing. It's the same thing as sexualizing yourself. You don't put yourself in super dangerous situations where that might happen. Where communication, you're you're literally two randoms having sex, and you have no prior communication history, and you you walk out of that normally thinking two very different things, and that is because you really don't know each other's people. You don't know their intentions. You don't know their values. That's a dangerous spot to put yourself in as someone who has done those things. It, it, I don't like that feels me, makes me feel not safe in a lot of ways, not because I don't trust what I did, but because we both have different experiences of, of what happened. And then two, I don't even think police officers, I don't even think the police should be in charge of rape. I, unless they're trying to find a rapist, like, but they shouldn't be, they, to me, they not, should not be in charge of like the actual process. No, uh, should no, go no, to no. like people out, outside of that. And that's one of the big problems why I think like, you know, not all cops are bad, but the system is broken and we need to make sure that they don't take everything. And then another thing that you said was, um, I, I hate when women would discredit what you just said about, you know, maybe the B2 movement has been hijacked because they don't like the the idea that someone could think that it's been hijacked when you're literally someone who's been through it all. You've been, uh, you're a survivor. You've been, you've had regrets about not going to the system and not doing like the process that way. Like, and they would still discredit you just because they would say, Oh, she hijacked or she thinks people hijack the system when you've been through it all. It's not like you're coming at this unbiasedly or like with a, any way of, of, hate towards the system you're just being honest about it and then people 
immediately dismantle that opinion. Well, it's, it's nowadays, if you have a differing opinion, opinion, then like the majority or the society or whatever, or this specific movement, like the way people think that this movement should believe, uh, you, you do kind of tend to get discredited. Like I said to a friend the other day, I said, you know, I really don't like the direction that the BLM movement's going. And that has nothing to do with me not supporting equality. I've always supported equality in every single way, uh, LGBT rights, African-American rights, um, women's rights. Like I've always been a very big advocate of these things. But at the end of the day, a lot of these movements get hijacked. People are surprised because I'm a vegan. I'm very big about animal rights. I don't like PETA. <laughs> uh, and that surprises people because yeah. they think immediately, oh, well, you know, you're going to endorse people for ethical treatment of animals. But I don't agree with the way the organization uh, practices. Uh, like I, I was talking to uh, Jamie Bennington on our interview and the hashtag make Chester proud was really big after Chester's passing. And he said, you know, the hashtag has pretty much been hijacked. And now it's every time somebody listens to a Linkin Park album, it's hashtag make Chester proud. That's never what it was meant to be. And I just think that most of these mm. movements with really great intentions kind of get hijacked by pe by extremist people that want to take yes. it to the 50th degree. <laughs> and I am well, all money gets involved. Yeah. And yeah. I, I'm all for the message of Me Too. I'm all for the message that we all need to be telling our stories. We all deserve justice in whatever way that means. We all deserve to find peace um, when these things happen to us. And we, we all deserve to, you know, find life and love after assault, after rape. But I do think, I do think, like you said, that men also deserve to feel safe and secure. A man also deserves, like, sorry for all those feminists out there, but a man also deserves to be able to feel safe in his life, that he's not going to be end up in jail because some girl wrongfully accuses him and he ends up yeah. you know, being convicted of something he didn't do. Yeah. Which is very rare, but it's still, it seems to be a, a potential as the wording of, of different movements kind of gets hijacked, yeah. as you said. And that was the real fear I had when I started this podcast is like, I don't, I never want to be seen as someone who perpetuates kind of these toxic ideas, but even like the conversation about TikTok and sexualization of self is a hard one for me to have because I know I'm going to probably get some flack or a lot of people will disagree with me on that, but it's like, I don't understand where really the disagreement comes sometimes because it's, if it's coming from a genuine place, which I feel like it is like it, you never want to hurt people, but you do, there does seem to be a, a lack of critical thinking in some areas of life right now. And it's just about, Oh, if it makes them happy, like, sorry, you're not put on this earth to, to only focus on your happiness. There are things like compromise. There are things like, you know, I, I always say you should be working for joy in your life, not for happiness, because joy is a state of mind. Happiness is a fleeting emotion. And I always looked at it the exact opposite. That's totally crazy because my, oh. my course that I call happiness boost, like I always said that I found happiness, but you're right. Happiness isn't a place that you arrive at. I always say that because people ask um, what it means when I say I'm happy now. Like I, I was in this state of depression. I was diagnosed with an SMI. Um, they told me, like I literally had a mental health professional tell me that I would never be happy. And mm. literally, like this was days after I almost wow. committed suicide. I literally came back from Canada where I had stood on a ledge of a Canadian hotel room looking down, ready to jump in in my life. And the only thing that brought me down, and this is crazy, was the song Breaking the Habit by Linkin Park turned on right outside my door. The cleaning crew turned on their their stereo and that came on right outside my door. And I came down off the ledge. Mm. And uh, when I came back to Arizona, I went to a mental health professional and I said, look, I'm tired of just being complacent. I'm tired of 
you making sure I don't kill myself on your watch. I want to be happy. I want to find Mm. genuine happiness. And the trick to that was, is it wasn't about finding happiness. It was about number one, defining what happiness meant to me. That's actually the first step in my, I have um, what I call the five puzzle pieces of happiness, which is what I learned during my journey um, of coming down off the ledge, so to say, and coming Mm. to a point of being decertified. They told me that was impossible too, of having a serious mental illness. The first place you have to be is really number one, figuring out what the hell happiness is for you or joy. It's, it's okay. Whatever word you want to use, um, finding out what that means to you, analyzing the areas that need focus, giving yourself props for the areas where you already are strong and everybody has them. We all have uh, areas that are strong, but yeah, that first puzzle piece is figuring out where you are and where you want to be, because there's no way you're going to get anywhere on a journey. If you don't know Look, think of it as a map. If you don't know where you are and where you're going, you're never going to get anywhere. So yeah, just learning about uh, the what I call happiness spectrum and how it can influence your mood and your life satisfaction and general outlook in life. And then going from there um, through the other uh, steps of or the other puzzle pieces, as I like to say. But yeah, I always... I, I can completely see where you're coming from, but it's just interesting that I had always kind of flipped it in my head with the definition... Yeah. Yeah, that's that's I I was just saying that to someone the other day because I'm like, my mom has always said like in a relationship you're not going to be happy all the time. In fact, most of the time you're not happy. No. If you think about all the other emotions you can experience, you're not happy. And happiness you have to work at. If you're my mom has been really important to me in 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 shutting down this whole idea of life of happiness because it's really overrated and life is about other people as much as it is about yourself. That's not saying disown your own happiness, but to give it this higher state of being when you don't, when most people don't even know what it is to themselves, as you mentioned, yeah, it, it really is a dangerous journey. Yeah. I think if you that, don't know, I think that people go into it with a completely wrong mindset. And I hear all the time, even from clients, I'm always hearing people say, well, so you don't have anxiety anymore. You just never have panic attacks. You're never angry. How does that feel? And I said, I don't know. I mean, maybe there's a Buddhist monk out there that that has achieved that, but that's certainly not me. The The difference for me now, how I would define happiness, there's a couple uh, important components there, I suppose. But number one, I feel like a Greek hero that overcame these insurmountable odds against me. Like mm. I had this life that... So many people would have just laid down and said, fuck this, look what happened to me, you know, and, and just given up. And that was almost me. But I knew when I got up in the morning and I stopped, my, my first thought was no longer, oh my God, not this shit again. My first thought was, what can I do today? What adventure can I have? And I smiled and I have, I have a gratitude practice I do in the morning and I would do my gratitude practice. And it was just so incredibly amazing to be able to, and that's when I realized that I, that I was kind of shifting out of that, um, out of the depression and stuff when I was consistently waking up like that. And the other aspect to it was, was when I realized you were saying that we have so many other emotions and that's so important, especially right now for people to understand we're in a freaking global pandemic. And even if we're not, you might have stuff going up in your life where you might feel stressed or uh, sad or angry. That doesn't mean that you're not a happy person or a joyful person. That means you're freaking human. Like there are days Mm -hmm. when I feel upset. There's days where I feel frustrated. That's okay. But my resting feeling 
is way, way, and this is where I talk about the happiness spectrum is way, way, way happier now. Like my resting feeling is way more content. Uh, and mm. I, I feel so much more life satisfaction. Even if I'm walking the dog or doing the dishes, I'm just in this, this state of satisfaction. That's super, uh, that's super powerful for me. Mm. I love that. And uh, with that note about happiness, I think it's a real good tangible to end off the show. But uh, as always, I want to give my guests a few minutes now to promote what you have going on. I know you mentioned the book that comes out spring 2021, or, or you're hoping that it comes out. Um, but where else can people find you, Amanda? And how can people connect with you? I'm actually super excited because I am doing a five-day challenge where everybody right now can learn those five puzzle pieces of happiness. So I just wanted to give everyone the opportunity to kind of get that framework uh, to be able to improve their life satisfaction no matter where they are. I know we didn't really have a chance to talk a lot about them, but there is, like we said, that initial uh, just knowing where you're at, your strengths, your weaknesses. It's all based on the DAS scale, the depression, anxiety, stress scale. So when you come in, you get to analyze where you are based on the scale that professionals use. Mine was actually, my depression was a 20 and my anxiety was a 16 when I went in. Two years later, my depression was, I believe, a three and my anxiety was a two. And if, like, I will guarantee that people that end up going through uh, my happiness boost course and stuff will drop at least seven points because these mm. are the five crucial pieces that I found through my healing journey that have to be in place to really have optimal happiness and life satisfaction. So um, learning how to emotionally eat the, the right way. So never having to count anything, but knowing how to uh, eat for optimal mental health, finding your fitness, even if you hate uh, going to the gym, even if you hate working out, reaping the physical and mental benefits of um, fitness and whatnot. Uh, what I call the three C's of sustaining happiness, that's the fourth puzzle piece. And that just gives you the tools that you need to navigate stressful situations and stressful people because we all have them without compromising mm -hmm. your happiness. And then the last step is just it's kind of a little bit of housekeeping and cutting the crap, which teaches you how and what to let go of for that final boost. But yeah, I'm doing a free challenge. So if you go to happinessboost.life, you can sign up there to do that challenge. I will be live uh, teaching everybody the components and there will be pie, my friends. That's how awesome this nice. challenge is. There will be pie. And you can also, um, everybody that participates gets a free copy of my workbook, how to improve your focus um, and improve your happiness or how to, yeah, how to improve your focus to boost your happiness. Pardon me. Is there a deadline for this or is this going on forever? So it will be on November 9th is the actual okay. um, challenge itself. But if you sign up, there will be a replay and I'm going to do it again just after the new year. Okay, perfect. So I'm going to make sure that this uh, podcast is scheduled for before November 9th. Thank you. <laughs> That's uh, that's the goal there. Then it yeah. probably be probably will be next week. I okay. think we're gonna move this one up. But yeah, if you if you go to happinessboost.life, that also has all of my social media links uh, where you can find me on Instagram. You can also check out the YouTube channel we are talking about where I do those celebrity interviews about mental health. Just because I'm really passionate about breaking that stigma, I'm really passionate about keeping the conversation going. Perfect. And I'll make sure to link all of that in the description of this podcast as well. But Amanda, thank you so much for joining me today. Your story is amazing. It's impactful. It's empowering. And I thank you so much for your honesty and uh, allowing me to ask these questions. Thank you so much. It's been very, very fun.